Markham, Richmond Hill, Vaughan. From everywhere you are. Aurora, Newmarket, East Willemberry. This is The Feed. Georgina, King, Whitchurch, Stovall. The Feed is York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to the people that live and work here. I'm Ann Romer. This is The Feed. Welcome. We have your back-to-school roundup, including road safety in school zones, managing anxiety, and how to have the money talk. But we begin with what this school year could actually look like. Back to the classroom for the majority of students here in Ontario next week. A whole lot of excitement tinged with a bit of apprehension, no doubt, being felt by pupils, parents, and even teachers. What will this new school year look like after more than two years of a patchwork education because of the pandemic? How will students manage the re-entry into the classroom full-time? And what about playing catch-up when it comes to lost learning that occurred while students were bouncing back and forth between virtual and face-to-face teaching? What role will educators play in ensuring a smooth and safe transition back to school as we once knew it. Annie Kidder is the executive director of People for Education, an advocacy group that believes in the power and the promise of public education. She joins us now on the feed. There are so many big questions to think about and answer. I guess probably the first one we talk about is what do you think this new school year is going to look like? Um, well, I think it partly depends still on COVID because the pandemic is definitely not over. So many people, scientists, are predicting a, it's hard to keep up with how many waves there's been, but I think a seventh wave now. Um, And I think it's more what we hope it looks like. Uh, We hope a lot of attention is paid to um, the impact that the pandemic has had on on kids' sense of security and well-being and, uh, you know, understanding how the world's working and keeping them safe um, so that we don't just try to sort of go back to normal but really recognize um, how what a huge impact the last more than two years has had. Um, but I think that classes will look the way classes looked before the pandemic. There, you know, there don't seem to be, um, it doesn't seem as if there are going to be mask mandates or anything, or even, you know, smaller cohorts. Uh, we still are saying to people in preparation for the school year, it's incredibly important uh, that kids are vaccinated and everybody's boosted. And we would still suggest, as are many scientists, that wearing masks is a wonderful preventative uh, kind of measure you can take during COVID. Let's talk about playing catch-up. And I use the word playing loosely. I'm trying to keep this as lighthearted as possible because I know that there's a lot of pressure on, on students right now and on teachers as well. But trying to catch up for lost learning, h- how does that happen and how does it manifest itself for these these amazing kids that are going back to school? Well, I think that to me, I, I think we have to be careful about the, the idea of catching up because I worry that if we just focus on catching up, um, it's kind of, uh, it's sort of trying to get back to the status quo. And despite having gone through the pandemic and continuing to go through the pandemic, we also need to have, understand that the world is changing. Uh, we need to be looking at uh, not just you know, catching up or getting back to normal, but how does education need to change? A lot of things were kind of exposed during the pandemic. Uh, they, um, it, 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 it amplified inequities, but it also kind of showed where maybe the system wasn't resilient enough and where, you know, other things we need to be t- paying attention to in school. So yes, catching up is important. 
They're in Ontario right now. They funded a, a time-limited um, tutoring uh, programs, which may help some kids as long as they're, you know, good, effective tutoring programs. Um, there has been a let's focus on reading, writing, and math, uh, particularly in the younger grades, which is really important for kids who who weren't in in school in real life for kindergarten. They have missed an important kind of school readiness aspect. But again, then the catching up has to do with uh, we have to make sure there's time uh, in, the, in the school day and in this first semester for that catching up to happen, as opposed to you've got to keep going with everything as normal and do the catching up at the same time. What about the social side of this? A lot of students uh, through many parts of the pandemic uh, were learning virtually, so they were perhaps alone or with family in their homes and not with their schoolmates and with their teachers face-to-face. Is that going to be challenging? I mean, being a student, whatever age, at this point, it, it can be an awkward time for any young person, just, just the fact that you're, that you're growing up <laughs> while you're in school. But now it's back to face-to-face. Is that going to be difficult for students? And what do you suggest to the student and to the, the parent and the caregiver? Well, I'm not sure it, the, the face-to-face, is necessarily going to be as difficult as the impact of not having been face-to-face for all this time. Mm-hmm. So I think one of the things we've learned in, in looking at the impact of the pandemic is how incredibly important those relationships are and all the events that happen at school, which we can keep be kind of, you know, condescending about as grown-ups. Mm-hmm. But when you're a kid, this is a huge part of your life. So kids have missed transitions into high school or celebrations that they normally have. But especially, you're totally right, they've missed those relationships with teachers, with other students, with other staff in the school. So I think what's important is to, if kids are feeling anxious, to really talk about it, to understand what's the school doing to kind of help make the transition back into in-person learning. Um, but also really recognize how how huge a loss it is for kids to have missed out on kind of vital moments in their lives that they're they're not going to get back and that are an incredibly important though absolutely sometimes very stressful uh, part of growing up. So it's recognizing the loss and also making the space to talk about. Are you feeling anxious? How do you think this is going to work? I think that's very important at the same time. You know, you bring up some very good points. And obviously, People for Education, what you stand for and what your mandate is. Has the Ontario government reached out to you for help, for suggestions on how to make this a smooth transition back into the classroom full time? Well, I think what's been uh, disappointing uh, over the last, you know, way more than two years now has been uh, a general lack of reaching out or a general lack of let's bring everybody together. We have been calling for, as have all of the other education organizations, principals, teachers, school board people, trustees, um, some sort of education task force where everybody is together at one table, people with experience on the ground, people with expertise, researchers, deans of education, students especially. And I think um, it is disappointing that that hasn't happened. It is happening in other provinces. Um, and it, it, would, it would have been and would continue to be incredibly helpful 
in, term, in, in terms of trying to ensure that whatever new policy you're enacting or uh, whatever next step we're taking, that everybody's had a chance to talk about it and provide good advice to the government. And, and that, that is problematic, I think, that that's been left out. Can we talk about the teacher's perspective, going back to school, back to what we sort of think is almost normal or some semblance of it? There are also teacher unions' uh, pressures and negotiations going on right now. How does a teacher, how does an educator step back into the reality of the school year 2022 with these tensions as well? And do they protect the students from this or do they involve them in some sort of understanding or discussion of how negotiations take place and why? That is such a hard question. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like if I knew the answer, you know, I could solve all the problems of the world. <laughs> um, because I think there's sort of two parts to it. There, There is the, the, the personal and professional uh, part of being um, a teacher, uh, support staff in school, all the people working in schools, and the, incre- the all the principals and vice principals, um, the incredible, uh, incredibly hard work that they've done over the last two and a half years, and the incredible amount of stress that they've been under. So we survey all the principals in the province. They definitely, as the year wore on last year, um, were raised huge concerns about whether the level of stress they were facing was manageable and whether the level of stress their staff was facing was manageable. So there is a desire among education workers, teachers, and all the education staff to have this year um, work better, you know, to feel a sense of support. There's definitely worries that there still isn't enough support there, not enough staff there. Um, so there, there is that angle. And then there is always a kind of tension between the, the, the professionalism of the work and then what the, the role of unions. And the, the role of unions is to represent their members, to you know, get better contracts for their members. And sometimes those conversations are ha- hard to have at the same time. It's really easy for um, governments and others to kind of demonize unions in education, but they're just as important in education as they are everywhere else. It is it is vital that we're hearing from education staff about about their jobs, about what they want to be doing, about about the stress they faced over the last two years, but also what they need going forward. So hopefully, those are parts of the conversation. You asked about how 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 students can become part of that conversation. I think that's really a harder one. And I think that people working in schools always have to be careful about um, their own points of view about things. It's the same with politics. It's being able to sort of leave conversations open rather than going, I'm going to, I'm going to convince you of my side in whatever the discussion is, either about negotiations or politics in general or, uh, you know, things like that. So it's a fine, hard balance uh, that everybody's going to have to tread going forward. Just a few more sleeps until it's back to school for Ontario students. And Annie Kidder, thank you so much for for giving us your opinions, your thoughts, your honest uh, answers about what you think could this could look like this particular school year. People for Education, a group that believes in the power and the promise of public education. Thanks for you educating us right now. (laughs) Thank you so much, Anne. Thank you for having me.
Keeping our roads safe is especially critical in school zones. Over now to Kevin Frankish with the CAA. 105.9 The Region, always a pleasure to speak with uh, Teresa DeFelice from the CAA, CAA Central Ontario to be exact. Hi, Teresa, how are you? Thanks, Kevin. Good to be back. I'm good, thank you. We talk about one of my favorite topics all the time, and that is traffic, roads, road safety. And, and because we are heading into back-to-school time, it's the perfect time for us to talk about back-to-school road safety. I know we're all cringing right now because we're talking back-to-school, and it's like, where did the summer go? Um, but yes, in just uh, one week, it's going to be upon us. And it is a really important and serious issue. There are two highlights that I, if, if you take away nothing else from this conversation, there are two things that I want everyone to be able to take away. Slow down and remember you are a role model. And these, the, the reason I use just these two as the, the, the big takeaways is going to become more obvious as, as we start talking. But let's start, start with the slow down. It seems simple, it seems easy, and it could save a whole lot of heartache. Speeding is one of the most common issues that parents complain about uh, in their children's school zone. So it's a mix of congestion, like there's a lot of vehicles, but there's also a lot of like flyby traffic that's happening, that people are going too fast. They're trying to get in and get out. Um, and it is a serious issue because you've got, you know, kids can be really unpredictable, especially in those first few weeks. They're excited to see their friends. They're getting back into a new routine. They might be running late. Uh, they got to head to a practice after school. And so, you know, that this unpredictability of what our, you know, vulnerable road users, our little people might be thinking, um, and the rush that parents are in can really exasperate uh, a situation. The other thing, too, is people may be rushing for those amber lights now, like hitting the gas when they see the light turn amber. With school back, it's just time to, to remember those lights are timed in such a way that you are able to stop safely. So you shouldn't be hitting a gas heading towards the intersection anywhere. Correct. An amber light on a, a stop, you know, on a street light is telling you to slow down and come to a stop, not speed up and try and make that light. Um, and I, I know we feel like we're in a rush and people are back at work, but um, you know, again, if, especially if you've got your little ones in the car, and as you said, that role model, they're picking up from you. One day they'll be a driver or they may be a driver. Um, they're picking up those habits from you. So the best thing you can do is, is, you know, perform yourself the way you want them to be a driver and be safe on the road when they get to that stage. And yeah. with yeah, the cars ahead. around them. So, right, you want them, you know, you don't want cars whizzing past. Um, when kids think that they're able to start to make it and get through themselves. Yeah, because, you know, we don't know if a kid is going to, sees the light is amber and starts to cross, uh, you know, thinking their light is about to turn green, you not giving it a second thought. That's wrong. They shouldn't be doing that. And in a moment, I want to talk to you about, about training your kids, road training your kids. But it doesn't matter if a child does something that is wrong. It doesn't matter because if they get hurt, that's all that matters. So you have to be prepared for their mistakes. Correct. As a driver, you hold the bulk of the responsibility in your hand. You're driving a vehicle. It has a lot of weight to it. You bear the biggest brunt of the responsibility. You know, left-hand turns are some of the biggest uh, causes for collisions and crashes with people and injuries. Speeding, obviously, the higher the speed, 
the more severe the injury or possibly resulting in death. And, and so these are the why we harp on these things. Good practice, you know, practice good behaviors, slow down, um, speed. A lot of communities are now dropping the speed to 30 kilometers an hour and, and parents support that because everyone's recognizing that, um, you know, there's a lot of vulnerable, you know, little people running around and, and we need to take extra caution in these locations. School zones are well marked, and I don't think there's an exception to that rule. And if there is, you should call your local counselor and and get that changed. But school zones are well marked. So what's it going to save you by doing 60K in a school zone as opposed to 30K? It's going to save you, what, 10, 15 seconds, and no child's life is worth that. Absolutely correct. Uh, You know, we're seeing more and more community groups, school group, parent groups, schools themselves, Uh, and the municipalities and the police asking for automated speed enforcement, right? They can't be in every school zone. So the other thing that's happening is relying on technology to send a message um, and and have these these boxes put in your school zone to to force that behavior as well. So if you don't do it voluntarily, there's going to be a way to force you to do Mm. it. And so we should all practice the right behaviors. Let's talk about school parking lots. Uh, you know, even though they're not public roadways and even though the Highway Traffic Act uh, has very little to do with, with private property and school parking lots, that can be an extremely dangerous place. It can be like the 401 at rush hour. <laughs> it's for sure. You know, most parking lots are actually dedicated for staff. There are some places that uh, maybe were built at a time where they could put a little bit of extra space for, for drop-offs. You know, ideally, it would be great to have a drop-off zone in every school. That that's just not realistic. Most schools were, were built at a time that we didn't have as many automobiles on the road as we do now. There was also a time where more parents walked uh, their kids to school or allowed kids to walk to school themselves or bike to school. This, this huge reliance on driving kids to school um, has really upped the number of vehicles and the number of potential incidents and incidents that are happening. And, and parking lots, you know, are confusing places at the best of time before a school bell rings or after a school gets let, let out. It's even worse. Let's talk about some alternatives then to actually having to physically bring your child to and from school. Yeah, there's a lot of great ideas. You know, first of all, uh, what happened to walking and biking to school? <laughs> you know, a lot of parents don't feel safe and they don't feel safe because of the traffic conditions, the volume of cars, the speed of cars, the amount of parents who are just stopping their cars in the middle of the road or double parking. Um, and so, you know, this is where we're saying, like, let's practice those road safety behaviors and get our kids walking to school. It's better for their brains. It's better for their learning. Uh, it's better for the community and the safety of the kids around the school. Um, and so you can park your car further away if you really feel that you're on your way to work and it's the most uh, you know, efficient thing to do. But park your car farther away and teach your kids those few blocks of a walk. Um, you know, there's school buses that we can talk about and obeying the stop arms and the, the lighting on school buses. We also have the CA School Safety Patrol Program in many schools, and we're hoping to see more of it come back in, in the, the 2022 school year. But if you see kids with a yellow vest, they're part of a specially trained uh, you know, programming to help kids navigate that, those last, that last little stretch uh, to their school. So you know, obey those, those little yellow vests. Um, they're on school buses, they're out front of schools and at different school locations. 
um, you know, we talked about slowing down. We talked about choosing a safe place to, to stop. Make sure you're making eye contact. Um, you know, does the child, you know, ha- is the child making eye contact with you or, or whoever's crossing the street? Make sure you maintain eye contact with them. Don't drive distracted. Um, and, and really just think about those last few stretches uh, of that, that little couple of blocks because it can make a huge difference. And that panic, that unsafe behavior, those near incidents uh, all too often lead to a potential for real incidents that, uh, you know, are all ones we want to avoid. What do we tell our kids? We need to go back to teaching some road safety. So, you know, a number of years Elmer. ago, CA- what happened to Elmer? Elmer, Elmer, uh, yeah, isn't around the same way. Uh, it's funny. There's there's a, a, some talk sometimes here and there bringing uh, Elmer back. You see Elmer sometimes at the Santa Claus parade. Um, you know, we've had the CA School Safety Patrol around now program for around 90 years. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have less police presence in schools these days. You know, there's there's uh, uh, you know they're attending to other issues and. Um, you know, trying to find ways to talk about these things is is a little bit challenging. Is it part of the curriculum? We worked with the Ministry of Transportation and the physical and health education workers to develop a web a website called the Ontario Road Safety Resource to help teachers um, even do plan lesson plans for kids and and parents can access it too if they search up the Ontario Road Safety Resource. Um, there are little tests you can do. There are videos you and your kids can watch. And it's all the way from kindergarten to grade 12. So these are all the situations that a child will have to navigate in and around a school zone and or a parent in, in order to protect kids in school zones. Very quickly, I want to get to school buses. Uh, when you see those initial red lights, uh, well, the bus is still moving. When you see those initial red lights, then when you see the secondary lights, go over what you need to know. School buses in Ontario are now going to be equipped with both flashing amber and red lights. So similar to a stoplight, the amber is telling you to slow down. You're going to have to come to a stop because that school bus has come to a stop. And when those red lights are flashing, you cannot pass a school bus. Um, You know, flashing red lights or even when they put their arm out means it is illegal to pass a school bus. And this comes with hefty fines if you try and get away with it anyway and get caught. Uh, there are demerit points that are attached to it, but ultimately what we want is for the kids to be safe. So don't pass a stopped school bus is <laughs> the simple if, message. If it frustrates you, which it frustrates some people if they're on a school bus route, then don't drive during those times. You know what, leave the car parked somewhere between three and 4.30 if it frustrates you that much, because I know some people will pass on the sidewalk. I've seen that. Yes, it, it is really scary. It, it is scary uh, to understand the number of people who are ignoring the warning light systems on school buses uh, and just blowing through. And, you know, this is disastrous. Uh, it is why Ontario finally passed both color lights. Like if it wasn't a message enough before just to see the red We've got the amber now. There's no excuse. You are going to have to stop. Um, you know, the more unsafe situation you create by trying to pass it, the longer buses have to stop because they're trying to navigate, not just letting kids off the bus, but making sure all the traffic has come to a stop. Um, we need to just obey the rules of the road. It's that simple. And if you need to leave earlier, leave earlier. Uh, if you want to find different ways to get around your neighborhood, if you're not dropping off a child at school, 
um, you know, find different ways to, to do that from different routes that don't take you through a school zone. Um, because again, these are unpredictable uh, locations and, you know, lots of little people running around. We don't want tragedies. We've had those in Toronto and, and elsewhere in the GTA in Ontario period. They're horrific. And, you know, no one wants to deal with that situation. No one wants to hear that situation. So be part of the solution versus being part of the problem. Lots of resources for teachers and for parents and even for students on your website. Absolutely. If you go to www.cascocasco.com, you can find everything that I've talked about and more around road safety, teaching road safety to children. Uh, If you're interested in a school safety patrol program at your school, there's info there. And just sort of topics about the school buses, all these issues. Everything's available on our website. Next, managing back-to-school anxiety that parents and children may be feeling right now, here's Tina Cortez. Back-to-school is often an anxious time for both parents and their children. To help ease the concerns is clinical psychologist Dr. Monica Vermani. Thank you for your time, Dr. Vermani. Thank you, Tina. So what is the first step for parents to help ease their anxiety or their children's anxiety if they're heading back to either elementary school or teens heading to high school? So understanding anxiety is about self-doubt, you know, fear of not being able to handle things that show up with uncertainty. And so as parents, we're role modeling to our kids how to manage day-to-day stress that just pops up. So it's important for us to increase our faith in our skill set. It's important for us to, like, reinforce for our children that whatever shows up, you can handle it. You have the skill set. Life only gives you what you can handle. And so it's important with the anxiety to understand where self-doubt and confidence comes in. And so identifying areas of self-doubt, of uh, not feeling capable, not feeling good enough, and reinvesting time and energy into the strengths we possess versus the weaknesses we have. Have you noticed increased anxiety, especially over the last couple of years, if students have been learning online and are now heading back to inside the classroom for the first time in a while? Yes. A lot of children who were well-adjusted just being at home with their parents and being on online schooling have found now returning to the classroom feeling inadequate about socially bonding with people, you know, um, maybe only being comfortable with their family members or not knowing what to say, or wondering if they're good enough. And so there's been a heightened sense of like social anxiety, as I call it, where people are worried about scrutiny, judgment, criticism by others. There's been a little bit more self-consciousness, wondering how to fit in. And the disconnect I think a lot of people felt, uh, regardless of age, has made them feel a little awkward about being amongst people again. So we do kind of have to reinvent people slow and steady coming to a place of being comfortable around others, having icebreaker questions, feeling comfortable talking about things that are beyond, you know, the basics. As parents, it's nice for us to teach our kids social skills of engaging by talking about hobbies and interests and things that they want to envision for their future, focusing on the positives versus the negatives. As parents, as guardians, as caregivers, Can we practice some of those things ahead of time before they head back to school? A hundred percent. That's a lot of what I do with patients here that come with anxiety. Again, the anxiety is about self-doubt, so we talk about it. We talk about facts 
versus, you know, fears. Uh, facts are, you know, knowing that this is true about me. And fears are you pulling a thought from thin air, giving it value without the proper evidence and support behind it. Sometimes we fear not being good enough. But the fact is, your academics, your friend circle, your friends and family liking you and supporting you is, shows a lot of evidence that you're worthy and you're good enough. Many times we fuel our fears. It's important for us to recognize you can't have two thoughts at the same time. So either you're having a negative thought or a positive thought. And when you have a negative one, teaching your children beforehand to reframe negative thoughts to being positive. Everything in life is possible. You want to look at the probability of good and bad things happening in your life. You want to challenge your children to challenge their thoughts that are negative to really see the accuracy of is it true or is it me just giving weight to something that feels true. And how do we start the process or the conversation with our children? The key is sometimes just offering how can I be of help when you're feeling nervous about going back to school? What are things you're nervous about? Many children in younger ages manifest anxiety not with negative thoughts tied to them, but they're more physiologically bothered by a tummy ache or a headache or shortness of breath and not feeling good in their body. So giving them healthy ways to meditate, breathe, jumping jacks, do something that connects to their senses. As you connect to your senses, you live in the here and now, in the present moment. And that helps kids get out of their head to feel more grounded. Teaching kids how to manage when they feel unease with anxiety. And then when you're older, you link those physiological symptoms to negative thoughts. So it's important for us to start helping them challenge negative thoughts instead of just accept them as truth when many times they're cognitive distortions, distorted ways of seeing reality or uh, worst case scenarios that we just fuel because we're worried about bad things happening. Fear of uncertainty. You also want to teach your kids that uncertainty comes with positive things, not just problems. Uncertainty comes with winning the lottery, making a new friend, getting a compliment, passing uh, and getting a good grade on a test that you studied for. Teach your children not to be afraid of things that come with the unknown, but reinforce that there's a lot of positives come, the new job, an opportunity to be in a play, and you know, allow our children to feel capable to handle. Life is a series of experiences, good or bad. Life only gives you what you can handle. That feeling capable is what each of us need to do, whether we're a parent or a child. When it comes back to school time, it's the uncertainty that comes with a new year, a new place, new students, a new classroom dynamic that we're just not familiar with. But whenever we have a learning curve, we get comfortable with things. We're creatures of habit. So when we don't have a habit in place, we get nervous. But the moment you're in that place, been there, done that day after day, you exercise the muscle to get stronger at it and know what to expect. But what about the parents and guardians? Do the same techniques apply to them? You bet. You know, when you're in pain, you spill over onto others. And so as parents, we have a responsibility not only for ourselves to be better and healthier in the roles we play, but also to not model behaviors that our children copy and facilitate in the future that we look back at and say, oh, I wish I didn't teach them that worrying about this or or forecasting worst-case scenarios. It's important for us to identify our own symptoms that may be impacting the way I parent or impacting the role modeling I'm doing to my child to feel insecure, feel not capable. Many times children, when they're born younger, are like superheroes. They live in the moment, they breathe, they act as a truth, 
And then over time, they're learning from us. Many times, anxious behaviors, worries, forecasting worst-case scenarios, being hesitant. And it's important for us to learn how to see ourselves and our kids and then learn to give them at least the tools to manage. But the first thing that would be better is if you learn how to manage your own symptoms because as you manage better, you are able to teach your children how to manage their symptoms better. You help them have the preventative care that maybe you didn't have in your life earlier. A lot of my patients, I'm really proud of them when they come to me as adults, that when their children are born, oftentimes they will preactively preventative care come to my office and say, how do I manage my children's anxiety? I can see signs of them being overly shy in these scenarios or hesitating with presentations or being anxious about you know, walking up to someone and saying something or trying something new. And I'll give them strategies. And the nice thing is as parents work on themselves, they are able to teach their children to seek help and get resources, ask themselves, what are you really anxious about? Focus on self-care, focus on staying in the present moment versus allowing your thoughts to take you to the past things that went wrong or the future forecasting worst case scenarios and learning how to challenge fear and look at the facts of the situation and enhancing self-esteem mm. as a parent works on them, your child inevitably benefits from them also learning healthy ways of coping and resources as well as seeking help when they don't know how to feel better about themselves. You normalize for them to know it's okay to go to therapy. It's okay to ask for help from a teacher or vocalize if you're not feeling good. It doesn't mean you're not worthy and you're weak. It just means we're all perfect and a work in progress. we got to fine-tune the areas that we need to take charge of and become better. I love that. If our listeners want more information about these techniques and strategies or to connect with you, how can they do that? My website is a perfect place. It's www.drmonicavermani.com. I have a book called The Deeper Wellness right now to manage mood, anxiety, stress, and traumas, as well as my website has two years plus of material of articles with actionable points and meditations recorded. It's a great resource center for people to just get tips on how to work on social anxiety, panic disorders, stress management, couples, and how to work with kids that are struggling with their own anxiety. So it's a great platform. So just go to my website, www.drmonicavermani.com. Vermani is spelled V-E-R-M-A-N-I. And can we pick up the book there or order the book there as well on your website? You can order the book on my website or you can go straight to Amazon. It's available everywhere. Dr. Monica Vermani, thank you so much for helping us prepare for the start of the school year and reinforcing that skill set for all of us to follow. We appreciate it. And each of us out there, we just need to take care of ourselves. And remember, don't give from your well, give from your overflow. The more you take care of you, you really do have a ripple effect of taking care of your children and the places that you perform roles in, whether it's your workplace, your family units, your partnerships. We talk dollars and cents next. Jim Lang with the Back to School Money Matters. Hard to believe, but it's almost time to get back to school. Back to school for kids, back to school for parents in both ways, especially having the talk with your kids about finances and back to school and money, something that we need to learn. And you're never too young to learn to talk more about it. Thrilled to be joined by PC Financial Certified Financial Advisor, Jackie Porter. Jackie, how are you? 
I am really good today. Thank you so much for asking. It's a pleasure, and, and I'm glad that you're doing this, teaching parents about having an open and correct dialogue that's very important with their kids about finances, because the earlier they learn, the better they'll be set up as an adult. I, I happen to agree fully with that. I mean, here's the thing is, the generation that didn't learn, I think millennials would agree with me when I say this, are talking about the fact that they're having to be adulting, <laughs> which is things they should have learned about, life skills they should have learned about. But they didn't get taught. So now they're just figuring out on the back end that they really need to know how to do certain things, like figure out how to manage their money. Well, I'll be very honest. I mean, I, as a young adult, I was not good with my money. My wife was. So I, I did defer to my wife a lot, and she did a heavy part of the heavy lifting. But our, our daughters are now university age, and they've been pretty good with money, way ahead of where I was at that age, because my wife, especially, they taught them about finances. So they knew what to do when they did have some money. You know, it's so interesting you say that. And I, I don't know if you had a chance to look at the at the um, actual at the actual um, uh, research mm-hmm. that PC Financial provided, where they talk about the fact that um, that really, really, it's it's three quarters, more than three quarters of parents are having these conversations with their kids. This is not. A generational thing. This is definitely a new thing because prior to that, I know my generation, I'm a generation Xer, money was much more of a, a fairly taboo subject. It's yes. not something you were sitting around the dinner table talking to your kids about. So it's, it's super encouraging as a financial planner to see more parents having this conversation with their children and, you know, really getting clear on how important it is to have these conversations. The earlier, the better, I would say. Speaking with Jackie Porter, who is one of the uh, top certified financial advisors for PC Financial, and I'm of the same generation, Jackie, and that was absolutely, I mean, you want to talk about do not go there. Talk, Hey, Dad, what are you investing in? Mom, where are we? Like that, you just never asked your parents about that. Yeah, how much money do you earn, oh, Mom? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> no way. <laughs> so, and it, it's funny because in the PC Financial research, it talked about uh, nine of 10 parents begin discussing financing with their kids 15 years and younger. Man, when I was 14 or 15, no chance was that brought up. So, I, I, Jackie, it's so refreshing to see this because we need this, especially trying to pass the torch to the next generation. Yeah, and, you know, as I said, we see the, really the effects of not learning about money. Um, there's so much vulnerability. Like, the thing about my business is, I'm realizing how many men, how many women are saying they don't feel financially confident because typically the first place that you have these conversations are in the home. So if they're not happening, where are you having them? We don't learn about money in school. So it's like I said, it was super encouraging to read that PC financial study showed that, you know, there's so many more, 70 over over um, three quarters of, of parents are having these conversations. And it also speaks to the fact that 85% of kids actually report feeling very confident having money conversations. Like you're hearing these kids talk about things, certainly we weren't talking about the stock market, crypto, all these things that certainly we were, you know, hit to growing up. Well, Jackie, I, I think for a lot of people listening, give them an example. What is a, you, what you think is a productive conversation from a parent to their kid about money? I, I think the first thing is, Start these conversations just as you would um, when there's an opportunity, when there's an event, right? So back to school is a great time. This is an awesome time 
to be having a money conversation. I know for a lot of parents, they're feeling the pinch with high cost of just everyday costs, high cost of inflation, mm. high cost of interest rates. We've seen interest rates just go up exponentially since the year started. So I think um, parents are feeling the pinch to their bottom line. And there's this pressure with kids to, you know, they want it's two months of past or is it three, like a little over two months of past since back to end the school year. Now we're back to school. And there's this sense that everything needs to be new. We need to get brand new everything and their pressure, the financial pressure that, that parents face to to offer that is I think probably one of the things, the hallmarks of this season that makes it an anxiety filling time for parents. So I think this is a great conversation to have conversations when it comes to prioritizing what's in the budget, what's not in the budget, <laughs> explaining to the, the difference between wants and needs to kids, helping them get financially organized, taking stock of what they have and what they need. I think these are really great conversations to have because they're also important life lessons that you can transfer to kids about financial responsibility. Jackie Porter is a certified financial advisor with PC Financial, giving us some great knowledge. Uh, Jackie, where can listeners go to contact you or get more info? Because this is knowledge we need. Yeah, I, I think um, it's super important. So I would recommend checking out, you can check on my website, askjackie.ca. Um, if you want more you know, financial information, I have lots of financial literacy videos on there. If you're looking for tools as well, um, I think some really great tools because Parents, again, are pinched, so this is a great time to look at ways to stretch your money further with something like a, like a PC bank account. The, the PC study is great because it, it talks about what's going on with parents, but let's also talk about how we can stretch our money further using rewards and getting paid to spend. So definitely check out their website. They've got um, tools on there as well. I know their, their credit card and their, their PC money account, their debit card also has banking tools where to keep track of what you're spending as well. AskJackie.ca and PC Financial helping us. Jackie Porter, thank you so much for the conversation and the knowledge of really helping parents and kids as we get ready for back to school. It's much appreciated. You're so very welcome. Thank you again for the time. Canadian Blood Services needs your support desperately. How to help after the break. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of The Feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. All next week, radio stations right across this nation, including here at 105.9 The Region, are participating in the Radiothon for Canadian Blood Services. Tina Cortez with How to Give. All next week, Canadian Blood Services is running a nationwide Radiothon, including right here on 105.9 The Region. To share the details, Rachel Solomon, Community Development Manager at Canadian Blood Services. Thank you for joining The Feed, Rachel. Thank you so much for having me. Before we discuss the Radiothon, remind us about the work of Canadian Blood Services. Absolutely. Thank you so much. So Canadian Blood Services is Canada's biological lifeline. So we work in our plasma, platelets, blood, 
stem cell and organs and tissues departments to make sure that we're meeting the constant need of Canadian patients. So whether somebody needs a blood transfusion from a car accident or somebody undergoing leukemia needs a blood transfusion, somebody needs organs, they need tissues, anything like that, we make sure that we are providing the necessary biological products to Canadian patients. And does that supply, is it provided to patients across the country? Absolutely, yes. So we are in charge of across the country, except for Quebec. Um, They do have Quebec, but we do work very closely with them to ensure that our national supply of blood and biological products are meeting Canadian patients' needs and helping to save lives. In terms of numbers, how much of a decrease in regular donors has there been since the start of COVID? Absolutely. So actually, we've seen quite a large decrease since July 1st. Our collections have been steadily decreasing. um, And this is kind of due to a perfect storm of factors. And we've seen the loss of 31,000 donors since the beginning of the pandemic. And we're just kind of seeing it decrease even more right now, especially in the summertime since a challenging time for collections for us. And it's kind of the first summer that people are able to get back to seeing their friends, their family traveling. So we're needing people right now to come in and donate. And if you haven't donated since the start of the pandemic, we're urging you, please book your appointment, come in and donate and make sure that patients aren't affected. So walk us through the process of donating. How does it happen? What do you need to do or what do you need to know? Absolutely. So the process is actually extremely easy. The first step and the most important one is to just book your appointment. So you visit blood.ca or you can give us a call at one triple eight to donate, which is one eight 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 two three six six two eight three. Once you have your appointment booked, then you're just going to show up at our blood donor center. We want to make sure that you eat lots of food beforehand, drink lots of water, and then you bring a piece of government-issued ID with you. Once you're there, you're going to check in with one of our lovely staff members, and then we're going to go through some eligibility criteria with you just to make sure you're okay to donate. And then we're just going to go and check some of your hemoglobin levels. Um, We're going to ask you a few questions, make you sign a consent form to make sure you know you're there to donate blood. And then you do the blood donation, which itself only takes about five minutes. So very easy for you to do. Once you're finished your blood donation, you get to take a bunch of snacks with you. That's (laughs) the best part of it. Absolutely. And that's only an hour of your life. And you're helping to save a life. Now, what could happen if donations do not increase? Well, we do need at least 100,000 new donors this year to make sure that we're meeting the needs of patients. So um, we're in a little bit of a precarious situation right now with our current blood inventory levels. So we're needing people to come out and donate to make sure that we have that blood available for people that um, are undergoing leukemia treatment, somebody that just needs a simple hip replacement. They need up to two blood donors. So we need people coming in to to make sure that people are receiving the blood that they need. 100,000 donors are needed. Can that actually happen between September and December? Absolutely. So uh, the 100,000 donors were needed um, in 2022 alone, and we've seen some great people coming in in just the past couple weeks alone, coming in to help donate and save those lives. But we do need a lot more people coming in to donate. Um, So we just really want Anybody that can, if you've never donated before or if you haven't donated in a really long time, come back to donate, please. Absolutely. Can you share with us a story or two about someone who has benefited from a donation? Well, 
actually. This and I'm is, sure there um, are many. A little bit. Oh, yes. Um, so actually, during COVID-19, I myself had a family member that needed a blood donation. You always hear the statistic, like one in every two people will know somebody or be somebody that needs a blood donation. And you think, that's never going to happen to me. Um, but during COVID-19, my father, he fell ill and he needed multiple blood transfusions to be okay. And I am just so thankful every single day that people came out to donate to help save lives. And they stopped me from having to lose my father at such a young age. So I'm so grateful to anybody that comes up to donate and helps to save lives like him. Good to hear about your dad. So tell us about next week's Radiothon. Absolutely. So next week, we're really just trying to make an appeal for people to come in and donate specifically at our Richmond Hill Center, which is in the northwest side of the Hillcrest Mall. We need at least 336 blood donors per week in Richmond Hill alone. So we're asking anybody, just please come in and donate. We need people coming in. So we're trying to get the word out there, trying to get people to come in, realize that we need these donors and Anybody could be affected by the needs of blood and blood donations. So book your appointment, come in to donate, and save a life. Is there a reason why there is such a need in Richmond Hill? Um, We do have a need kind of everywhere, but we've seen a lot of people in the GTA area not coming out to donate as much. Um, With the pandemic, people were moving out of the GTA area into smaller areas. So we're needing those people to come back and donate. All right, so let's tell our listeners, how can they help donate and learn more? Absolutely. So um, the biggest way to help, book your appointment and sign up to donate. So you can visit our website at blood.ca, go through the ABCs of eligibility, make sure you're okay to donate, and book your appointment. Or you can always give us a call at 1-888-236-6283 and book your appointment there. Also, just spreading the word. Bring a friend, bring a family member in to donate with you. Make it a fun time and tell your friends, tell your coworkers. Encourage them all to donate blood. We can do this. Thank you, Rachel. Amazing. Thank you so much. After the break, Tiff is back. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. TIFF begins on September the 8th. Shaliza Bacchus now with a 10-year-old star making his premiere. The Toronto International Film Festival is back in full force after a hybrid type of festival the last couple years. Sebastian Singh is 10 years old and making his feature film debut and going to be walking the TIFF red carpet for the first time as well. How are you, Sebastian? Hi, I'm good. Thank you so much for joining me. Okay, so you're starring in your first big movie, right? Yeah, it's called Brother. And yeah, I'm the younger version of the lead role. And how has that been? And what's the movie about? Um, It's been super fun. And it's about two brothers um, living in the early 90s. But then a tragic event happens that changes their lives forever. Okay, so you mentioned you play the younger version of the main character, Michael, and this movie is set in the 90s. So you had to play a character from a time way before your own. So how did you feel about playing a kid from another decade? It was super fun. 
I liked seeing the cars because they're super different than the cars that we have now. The cars, yeah. And what's different about the cars? It's cool how they're like flat and then it's kind of like a square on the top. Yeah, that's definitely different than what we have now, right? Yeah. And this movie, Brothers, it's also based uh, pretty heavily on hip-hop culture in the 90s as well. So, Sebastian, what do you think about the music from the 90s? Um, it's pretty different. Do you like it? Uh, yeah, some of, some of the music. Yes, I know. It's really different. So tell me what it was like working on this movie and what it's like being an actor. It's been super fun. I love being an actor. I love meeting new people. And is this what you've always wanted to do? I was actually an actor when I was a baby because my dad put me in acting when I was a baby, so I didn't really have a choice. But I actually like acting. And you know what? You're pretty good at it, too. So this movie is going to be premiering at TIFF. Sebastian, do you have any other projects that you're working on? Yeah, I have some uh, things, but uh, projects, but I can't talk about them yet. Okay. Okay. So you don't have to tell your secrets just yet, but you are headed back to school this week, right? Uh, yeah, I'm uh, going back to school on Tuesday. What grade are you going to be in? I'm going to grade five. And how are you going to balance going to school and your career as well? I'm still going to be tutored when I'm gone. So that means you're still going to be doing your homework, right? Yeah, while I'm out of school. Okay, congratulations on all your success, Sebastian. We're definitely going to be looking out for you on the TIFF red carpet for the premiere of the movie Brothers. And you've got such a bright future ahead of you. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. Bye. If you missed any part of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.